You're listening to Rintoul and Sermon. We didn't get to put our opinions and our thoughts forward very much, though we did discuss it with Tim McAuliffe a little bit earlier in the program. I want to get into the malice at the Palace a little bit, sports docs in general, and if there are any that you want to see made that haven't been made yet, and boy, you'd be lining up to see them. It's Scott Rental, Jamie Dodd here on this Wednesday. We're going to get some Lions news in the next hour, official announcement of new ownership. The general manager of the BC Lions, co-GM Neil McAvoy, will join us at 1230. Neil's a guy, Jamie, that has seen it all. He has been there for 26 years. He was there when the team looked like it might have to leave town, and David Braley came in. He spanned the entire David Braley ownership, and now he will be on board for a new ownership group as well. So I think he can offer some very valuable perspective on where this team has been, lessons that have been learned, and where this team might be headed in future days. Yeah, and what local ownership might mean for the Mm -hmm. team going forward. I'm excited to chat with Neil, get his insights into the big news of the day. And we're about 10 minutes away here from uh, the BC Lions officially rolling out what they have to announce today. More on that as the hour continues, as as the show continues as well. You and I both consumed Malice at the Palace last night. It's on Netflix right now. It's part of their Untold series. It's a sports documentary And Malice at the Palace probably brings back a memory for the majority of our listeners. But for those who don't know anything about it, may have missed it, didn't pay any attention to the NBA, though it was a massive news story, it's really hard to believe that you would have missed it in some way, shape, or form. This was when the Indiana Pacers went into the stands in Detroit, got into it with fans after something was thrown at Ron Artest. Beer was thrown at him. He went after a fan incorrectly identify the fan but all of a sudden a brawl broke out between the pacers between fans fans charged the court it was this massive melee it caused international headlines i watched it we're not going to spoil the whole thing for you but there are some takeaways that are general ones what jumped out to you jamie well one i mean it still has the capacity to kind of make your jaw drop a little bit exactly what went down and how crazy the scene was in the arena. Even, you know, I've seen the footage a million times, right? Because it is so fascinating, but still seeing it play out like that, it was just a bizarre, crazy night. Like really unlike anything we've seen. I know, I know Tim McAuliffe brought up the example of Mike Milbury and and others going into the stands. Yeah, that is a comparable, but there was just something about this that feels a little different and and maybe it's just because you know it's it's being broadcast nationally at the time or whatever it is it it feels still a little bit unbelievable that something like that actually happened so that was a big one that jumped out to me and also I mean again you know this intellectually but just the sheer amount of let's say extremely tough characters involved in that game right because you have Ron Artest at the time, Meta World Peace, Steven Jackson on the Pacers, Jermaine O'Neal on the Pacers. And then on the other side, you have Ben Wallace, one of the toughest players of the era in, in the NBA. Rasheed Wallace, who it's kind of funny. If you know anything about Rasheed Wallace, you know he had the reputation to be extremely combustible. I mean, he's a bit player in this, but he's still involved. He's still on the court. So you forget just how much you know, of that toughness was out there, right? And and it's, uh, man, just it was the perfect storm, really, for something like that to happen. How about that new coaching, uh, that coaching duo now at Memphis? And just as you oh, mentioned, man. Rasheed Wallace. Penny Hardaway bringing in Rasheed Wallace as an assistant coach. I'm guessing a little recruiting power between the two of them. 
Yeah, that's not bad. That'll get some recruits' attention for sure. That is a like that's the kind of thing you know you go back fifteen or twenty years and say, yeah, one day Rasheed Wallace and Penny Hardaway will be coaching college basketball together. It's kind of hard to wrap your head around it, but yeah, I think they'll be able to connect with high school players coming out and looking for a college to play at. When I first heard that this was coming out, Malice at the Palace Untold, I was really interested. I was no less compelled after finishing it last night. It was great. They did a great job of setting the scene. Why was the cauldron bubbling prior to this game? They did an excellent job. You outlined it earlier. The two teams had met in a really tough-fought Eastern Conference Final in 2004, won by the Pistons, who would go on to win the NBA title. This was the first game back. It was Friday night in Detroit. There were fans who were into it. It's Friday night, so people are a little looser with the amount of beverages they're consuming. And the characters that you mentioned were a big part of it as well. And there's a couple of points that you watch now, and you probably knew back then, man, if that one thing didn't happen... Yeah. then it probably doesn't get to this. If that one thing didn't happen, then it probably didn't get to this. But there are some really big issues that you can watch and you can be thoughtful about when you see this program in 2021. One of them is what you talked about, with who was Ron Artest at the time, since changed his name to Meta World Peace. And we look at him much differently now that he has talked about his mental health struggles with the more we know about mental health, with what was very much stigmatized back then and is still to a certain degree now. What he was going through is so much more understandable to us in 2021. That doesn't excuse some of his behaviors, but we have an acceptance of people who struggle with mental health, and most of us can relate to that. Yeah, we have an understanding about it, and you th- you'd hope that, you know, first of all, that a scenario like this would never unfold in that way today. And one of the reasons you hope it wouldn't is because whatever team the athlete in question played for, you think would be doing more to support him, right? And to help him work through whatever issues are challenging him in that way, because we have that greater understanding that so many people just didn't have, you know, almost 20 years ago now when this went down. So that's a part of it. The other part of it that comes out of this for me, Jamie, dehumanizing of athletes. There was a very clear distinction drawn between the players who were involved and the fans who were involved. And there were it was, it was almost a number of apologists at the time, talking heads and yep. some very prominent ones who excused the behavior of throwing things at players. Hey, you're gazillionaire athletes. Sometimes you're just going to have to put up with it. The fact that these athletes would fight back and very little talked about with those who chose to come down from higher seats, charge the court, go into the forum in where these athletes are generally meant to feel safe. Very little was talked about that. And the term thug was used repeatedly, repeatedly, repeatedly at the time. That dehumanizing of athletes, it might not be in the same way, but it's still done here today in 2021. And I think it's a lesson that can be learned by all of us. Well, it absolutely is. Even in a much more common scenario where you're just talking about, you know, heckling a player, right? And that you feel as if paying the ticket gives you the right to say absolutely anything to a certain player on the ice or on the court or on the field, right? And that you can cross certain boundaries that you never would with another person that you meet in another circumstance, but because they're a rich athlete and you're a paying customer, you feel like you have that right. And that really is one of the most important takeaways of the documentary, I think, is that this was as much about fan behavior being out of control as it was anything to do with the players, right? Just, first of all, throwing something at the players on the court, which is completely unacceptable. But then 
people actually having the gall to go onto the court and challenge players to a fight, right? Like the one guy interviewed in the, I mean, he's going, he's walking onto the court and basically putting his fists up to Ron Artest like he wants to fight him. And and that's the guy that Jermaine O'Neal ends up punching and getting suspended for. But you think about it in context, what, you're just supposed to let this guy come up to your teammate and, and have a swing because you're an athlete and he's a fan? Come on. You go onto that floor, you go onto a football field, you go onto the ice surface, you are in a place you have no business being, and those people have no idea what you're going to do. And if the Monica Seles incident way back in the day didn't change that for a lot of people, then I hope something else since has. You have no business being out there. There's no excuse for it. That doesn't mean that players can do anything they want to you, but... I'm with the judge who ruled in the case saying Jermaine O'Neal had the right to defend himself when somebody yeah. rolled onto the court and decided to to challenge these players. Yeah, of course he did. And even at the time, the Jermaine O'Neal punishment seemed a little excessive, I think. And there's that montage uh, in, in the film where they're talking, you know, all of the talking heads are saying NBA has to send a strong message here. They absolutely have to send a strong message. And of course, that's what David Stern decided to do. And I think Jermaine O'Neal kind of got caught up in it getting getting a punishment far beyond what he deserved because you're absolutely right. I mean, that player and and this isn't a situation where, you know, a single player or a single fan, excuse me, wanders into the area of play kind of unexpectedly, right? This is this had devolved into basically a riot. And in that context, how can you expect the players or Jermaine O'Neal or whoever it is to have any sort of confidence that this fan means well, that he doesn't have violence on his mind. Again, when I, as I say, he's actively challenging Ron Artest, of all people, to a fight. You really, in that situation, you have every justification to believe that he might try to hurt you. The players took almost all of the criticism. They took the lion's share of the majority of the punishment. There was very little done to any of the other offending parties who happened to be fans at the time. Ron Artest gets suspended for the rest of the season. 30 games for Steven Jackson. You see a 25-game suspension for Jermaine O'Neal. And that's one of the other takeaways I had from this. Jamie, I have no idea how you felt about the late David Stern, who did great things for the business of the NBA, but I am not convinced was the greatest commissioner. He was an excellent business commissioner. And if that is your sole responsibility, David Stern, full marks. I believe there has to be an integrity of the game, best thing for the game, the soul of the game. David Stern failed the NBA on a number of occasions. I understand from a business standpoint why he did what he did in that situation. But even when he answered that one question about how it was a unanimous decision, yeah, and he said, yeah, it was unanimous, one nothing. The yeah. arrogance that David Stern conducted with him, himself with at times. And, yeah, there's some bitterness about the way he helped rip a team away from this city and allowed it to just walk away with Michael Heisley to Memphis. It always sat poorly with me. It still does to this day, despite how much he caused the great game to grow financially. Well, and again, with this specific incident and with kind of the history of the NBA in general, there's there's a race element at play here, right? And he felt like he had to send a message that basically he was in total absolute control. And then the other thing that 
came pretty much as a direct result of this, or at least of the perception that the NBA had this sort of image problem, was the dress code, right? And that's just another example of an extremely condescending, patronizing policy that was put in place. Again, I think largely based on you know the racial politics of the United States and not a good look for David Stern. You're right. He did a lot of good things for the NBA. It's in a much better place now than it was when he took over, I think. You know, you can point to the players for a lot of that. But it's also fair to say that he made some serious missteps. And in this particular era, around this particular issue, the dress code is one that really stands out to me in addition to these punishments. It just always struck me that he felt like he was more important than the game. And maybe that's not the way it worked for owners. And maybe the players who have benefited financially over the years don't feel that way about it. That's just the smugness that David Stern came off with to me for a lot of years. Yeah, that's fair. He, he definitely did not lack for confidence and did not lack for arrogance, that's for sure. Well, and part of that is, I think, what rubbed people the wrong way about Gary Bettman. And I think most hockey fans, whether they're massive Bettman fans or not, I think they have a greater appreciation for him now. But part of it is because some of that arrogance and smugness that he operated with earlier in his career, it's gone away. And he's become a much more yep. human person in running the National Hockey League. Yeah, he has. He's almost stopped trying to project that same level of arrogance as David Stern had. Of course, they worked together at the NBA, so you wonder how much of that was was Stern's influence, uh, kind of rubbing off on Gary Bettman a little bit. But you're right; he has been a little bit more relaxed, and that might speak to you know the NHL being in a more successful, stable place now than it has been at different points in his tenure. But I think I don't want to say fans have warmed to Gary Bettman. I I think that would be going too far, but there seems to be less vitriol aimed in his direction. And, And even when they do boo him at a draft or whatever, a lot of that is kind of just going through the motions because it's fun rather than this passionate hatred for Gary Bettman that used to exist. Are there any sports docs out there that you're pining for right now? We got the last dance last year, and it was so highly anticipated, and it hit at just the right time when sports weren't going on, when we were in the first part of this pandemic. And whether you thought it was a true documentary or or you thought it was too much of a sell job from Michael Jordan, it was great. It was compelling, and it made me just crave more. Malice at the Palace made me crave more as well. Is there something that you would like to see made that you don't, think has either been made properly or hasn't been made yet well one and i got a couple of um you know basketball related ones maybe inspired by the last dance and by uh uh, the malice of the palace documentary i mean one would be just a deep dive focus on the 1992 dream team and i know it was covered a little bit uh in the last dance but to go completely in depth on the construction of the team the performance what it was like having all of those personalities and stars together and then also the impact on world basketball after the fact i think that would be a really fascinating subject and then another one that i think would pick up on a lot of the same issues addressed in the malice at the malice at the palace and i know there has been Uh, Some features made about him, but a really high level, well done kind of biography documentary of Allen Iverson, because I think he is one of the most fascinating players and personalities of that era. And again, you look at so much of the criticism. If you went back and revisited what people were saying 
about Iverson during his heyday, it's a lot of the same things, right? Oh, thug. Oh, he has this this hip-hop mentality that's alienating people. It's a lot of the same words we would never use today, but that was just how people talked about Allen Iverson. I find his life story, his career to be really, really fascinating. So that's one that jumps to mind for me as well. Yeah, the Iverson one would certainly interest me as well. How about this one I'll throw out there? And it would take some convincing, and it would take the right interviewer because, look, these players would not have agreed to do this on the Malice. That was, I mean, the great Steven Jackson clip that is, I'm not talking about this ever again. You get that on, like, this is the last time I'm talking yeah. about this. You make sure that you get that on tape right now. So there was some trust involved here, and I don't know what finances were involved either. I'd like to see one on Barry Bonds. I really would. And I know what a reviled yeah. character Barry Bonds was, but if Barry Bonds is willing to sit down at some point and say, okay, I'm going to open up. I'm going to tell you how it all went down. I'm going to tell you why I did what I did, what eventually caused me to make the decision. And I know there's been reporting done on that, but part of what made Malice at the Palace compelling and what makes some of the great sports docs compelling is you got to have the actual protagonist involved. And Barry Bonds, I'd like to see it, even though I wasn't a big Bonds guy back in the day. No, I think that would be a fascinating one for sure. And again, it's the kind of thing where there's probably a lot that we misunderstand about, first of all, what went down, but also just second of all, his motivation and his reasoning and why he decided to do the things that he did. And I mean, Barry Bonds also was just, you go back and look at his stat line at those prime, you know, on the juice years, it is just almost unfathomable that he was hitting the way that he did. So you'd have a ton of great footage to use. And if you could get him to open up, to sit down in front of the camera, to be candid, to be honest. Yeah, that would be incredible to watch. Blake says Tiger Woods, if he was open and honest, it's a really good one. We saw the Tiger Woods documentary come out last year, but it doesn't involve Tiger actually going through it. It just takes clips of Tiger over the years that had been out there in the public, and it incorporates them into the doc. It's not Tiger Woods looking back and, and trying to give you a better indication from the purview of where he is at now in his life. And again, that's one, obviously, as you say, that you'd have to have to make it truly worth the while. You would have to have the cooperation of the principal of Tiger Woods in that case. And it is kind of an interesting question as well, because, you know, the last dance gets made and Michael Jordan, he opens up. But we also know he has a ton of control over how it's put together. Right. And it's extremely entertaining. But it also leaves you with questions of, okay, am I actually getting the whole story here or is this so kind of moderated by Michael Jordan that should I should just view it as kind of a fun bit of storytelling rather than a documentary and you know I believe Jermaine O'Neal was an executive producer on this Malice at the Palace documentary so it's a similar thing right and I'm not saying he's deceiving us in any way but it's a situation where the player has a degree of control about how his story is going to be presented and I wonder you know For us saying, oh, we'd love to see the Barry Bond story. We'd love to see the Tiger Woods story. Would it have the same impact if we knew Barry Bonds or Tiger kind of had that level of direct control over the project? That's something I struggle with because I love getting the peek behind the curtain. But I also know when you give the subject that level of control, there's always going to be questions about how exactly the story is being presented. There's already an Iverson doc on 30 for 30. Come on, guys, says this texter. I think you're wanting one that's a little longer and yeah. more exploratory is what you were suggesting earlier, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. This one's comes in a couple times. Is there a doc about the game they turned off the lights 
on the 87 World Junior Game. That's from Kevin Clarney. We've had that a couple of different times. There is a feature on it, at least. I know I've seen something on it. I don't know that there's the 30 for 30 or hour-long, hour-and-a-half-long punch-up in Piastani doc that's out there right now. But that's a good submission from way back in the day. That was the World Junior Hockey Brawl between Canada and the Soviets. Back in the day, Tony submitted that one as well. Devin says Paul Korea. There's a really good feature out there on Paul Korea. I believe it was Michael Farber who did it, was it not? In the last couple of years? I think that's years? right, yes. Yeah, yeah th there's a good one. That was prior to Paul Korea going into the Hall of Fame. That one is out there, and it's it's really good. We've had this one come in as well. Dave in Vancouver says, good sports documentary, The Battered Bastards of Baseball. It's on Netflix. He says to give it a shot. It's pretty good. Appreciate the recommendation, someone else saying the best sports doc I've seen lately was the Lennox Lewis, Lewis doc. I have yet to see that one. You? I have not watched that one either. Uh, we should get a quick update here for our listeners. Scotty, as we mentioned, the BC Lions all set to make their announcement. And they have now made it official that Amar Doman is the sole new owner of the BC Lions. So we were wondering if it might be part of an ownership group. But based on what the BC Lions have announced, it is only Doman. He is going to be... Uh, the guy as owner of the BC Lions going forward. This is the quote that comes out in the press release. I'm thrilled and excited by the opportunity before us to build a winning team on the field, to be a positive force for a better British Columbia off the field, and to provide a great experience for our fans and our partners every step of the journey. The Lions are part of the fabric of this great province. I'm honored to take on this role because of our team's history, but I'm motivated most of all by the future I see ahead of this franchise. I am extremely excited to get started we'll see some quotes roll in and in an hour's time we will talk to the co-general manager of the bc lions neil mcavoy who's been with the franchise for more than a quarter century and we'll get some perspective about where this goes where this franchise has been and why this is the right time for this franchise to change hands you can comment on that or anything else you hear on the program 650 650 it's the dunbar lumber text message inbox accountability you demand it from us how much do you demand from your general manager, there's a quote that's out there that needs to have a little more scrutiny. And we'll get into it next right here on Rintoul and Sermon with Jamie Dodd. Now back to Rintoul and Sermon. How much does local ownership matter to you? It's a question we asked off the top of the show. You are free to weigh in on that on any time throughout the course of the day. It's running pretty consistently here, Jamie. It's a battle between a lot and somewhat, not at all, falls a little further down the list, though this is a fairly balanced poll question that we've got out there right now. Somewhat leads at about 40%. 37% of you think local ownership matters a lot, and a shade under 23% believe that local ownership does not matter at all. It might not be the number one priority for most sports fans, but it, for, I think for the vast majority of people, this isn't surprising to me that that most would say, yeah, if I if I have my druthers, I want a local owner. Yeah, I'm a little surprised actually to see that doesn't matter at all is polling that high. I, I had a feeling it would be in third place, but I'm a little surprised it's even doing those numbers. Yeah, we talked about this earlier in the show. It's certainly not the only thing that matters, and it's no guarantee that just because you have a local owner that, you know, they're going to be a good steward of your favorite team, but it can't it helps. It definitely helps. Just to give you that extra little bit of confidence, at least in the honeymoon phase, right? That okay, this is a person who actually probably has some sort of emotional connection to the team. They have ties to the community, ties to the area. 
that gives me the confidence and the belief that they're going to try to do right by the team. Doesn't always work out that way, but I think it's fair to be more confident that that's going to be the case with local ownership than it is with outside ownership. The reason we're asking is very obvious. The BC Lions now have local ownership. And this has been a long time coming. This has been rumored for five, six years now, and eventually it has come to fruition. Amar Doman is the new owner of the BC Lions, and it's a sole ownership group. It's not going to be a consortium. There have been proposals in the past involving local business leaders. That will not, in fact, be the case. You've got one local owner who is spearheading this. He and his family live in West Vancouver. This is not, hey, I'm from BC, but I'm somewhere else. Nope. This is somebody who is local and on the scene. And as you and I outlined earlier in the show, and we're pretty much lockstep on this, with where this franchise is at right now, you need a local owner to call on some of those connections to say, I need your help in helping generate interest in this, getting people out, causing a little excitement. And you still have to have a great product, and you still have to have some of the trappings that come with modern sporting events, which merge into entertainment. But the first thing is you got to get people to the game, and a local owner has a better ability, at least in my estimation, to do that than someone who is afar. Yeah, and Doman is is addressing some of those uh, questions and some of those thoughts, you know, even in the statement that the BC Lions are using to announce his ownership, right? Saying that he, he wants to provide a great experience for our fans and our partners on every step of the journey. And that kind of addresses what you're talking about, right? That, okay, we have to do a better job of building those ties with the local business community and translating that into extra attendance at BC Place. And the other thing he says is, you know, I'm motivated most of all by the future I see ahead for this franchise. And I'm sure he's going to be doing the media rounds in the next couple of days, but that's ultimately what's going to determine if his ownership is successful or not, right? Is what is that future of NECs? What is the vision for how to, for for the future and also the vision for how to get there for the BC Lions? And I'm really interested to hear what he has to say in some detail, hopefully, on that subject. Yeah, and one of the questions that will be asked, and he will have to provide an answer and a plan for, is can you redo what you did earlier this century? It's easy to forget that the BC Lions were in a really bad spot when Bob Ackles came back to this team. And Bob Ackles is not ultimately the owner, but Bob Ackles is the guy who got this thing turned around because he cared, because he had a connection with the community. And one of the things that Bob Ackles never lost, with as far as he ascended in professional football, didn't matter if he was the guy in charge when they got BC Place built and ultimately won a great cup, in 1985 and that was really celebrated and then he went to the nfl and he's working with multiple franchises the dallas cowboys he's he's working with jimmy johnson at the time and people who know bob ackles jimmy johnson include him hold him in extremely high regard one of the things he never lost despite how big he got career-wise was his ability to connect with the average person and that is very much needed here right now especially in the CFL, right? Which is all about building those grassroots ties in the community and, and specifically trying to kind of recapture a generation or two generations of fans that they have been able to build those ties with, right? And I think it's the kind of thing that's going to happen at the retail level, so to speak, right? And having an owner who's comfortable do, doing that goes a long way to 
you know, you might have to do it one by one, fan by fan, but you need someone who can put that work in and who can be successful at that work. Jeff in Langford wondering, does he have deep enough pockets to own a pro team? I would suggest he does. I have not done a deep dive on his financials, but the report that I read this morning and the bio that has been put out suggests that, yes, Amar Doman does have the financial wherewithal to own a pro team. And I understand the question coming from Jeff, and that's one of the big questions that comes in about any ownership group in any sport right now, Jamie, because in a league like the CFL where you are capped with your player costs and you are capped now with your coaching costs as well, it's about whether or not you're willing to spend around that. Hey, this is something we talk about in the NHL as well. What do the best franchises do? Well, they spend the cap on their players and they pay their coaches and staff very well but they also provide the resources around all of that that make it more attractive for players to play in those environments. Yeah, and that's part of it on the football operations side, and and that's going to be a big question is does he invest on those things? But I also wonder how he's going to invest on the marketing side, right, and the business side of things because there's two questions there. There's one, are you willing to spend the money, and two – do you know how to spend the money wisely, right? And that might almost be more important than just the raw amount of investment. It's great to go big on you know, big advertising campaigns and things like that, but if they're not successful, it doesn't matter that you're spending all of that money. So I agree, it's the football operations, it's doing the extra little things that aren't capped to try to put a good product out there, but then I'm really interested to see what the investment looks like on the marketing side, on the business side of things, and if they can kind of crack that code that a lot of CFL teams are trying to figure out and figure out a way to market the team more successfully to a larger group of fans. If you want in on this topic, you can get in 650-650. Dunbar Lumber text message inbox open all day. I like this one from Lack, and I don't think it's going to happen right away, but I understand why you're saying it. Perfect time to make the Lions full-time jersey the gunmetal ones worn previously. Man, it was such a smash success when they wore that. Do you remember it, Jamie? I'm not sure. I'm going to look it up uh, really quickly here, but I, I don't have a clear image of it in my head right away. So it was the gunmetal black or gunmetal gray. I can't remember exactly which color they labeled it with when the Lions wore them, and it was that matte helmet as well. They were ahead of the curve on it. And that doesn't yeah. often happen in the CFL uniform-wise with everything that gets done in college and, and other leagues. The BC Lions were so far ahead on that and they wore it for a few games. Fans loved it. It got attention in the NFL. There were big-time NFL players that saw images of it and said, that is awesome, man. We need something like that for our NFL team. It got that kind of attention, but they actually never went there. The numbers were a little hard to read, but I don't think those who were purchasing jerseys care. <laughs> like, if you were somebody no. like me who had to identify them at, at some point in time from the booth, uh, maybe it was a little more difficult, a little easier because I was the Lions play-by-play -play broadcaster. And so, I, you know, you get a sense of how players yeah. run, what they look like physically. But opposing broadcasters would come in and go, man, that's really hard to figure out who's on the field and, and what number they're wearing. That was one of the complaints, but compared to what they could have done with that marketing-wise, it was a small one in my opinion. Yeah, and I pulled it up here, just a quick Google image search, and you're right. They look extremely sharp. I love the matte look, the matte black look on the helmet and it's a good point by you too that listen you're not always cfl teams aren't always ahead of the curve on things like this right if you can find an opportunity where you are why not lean into it a little bit and try to maximize it as much as possible keep those texts coming in 
I might be the vast majority or vast minority, pardon me, says this texter, but I do feel if the CFL adopted NFL rules, such as four downs, among others, I feel it would attract younger audience because it is confusing to some. Stop being stubborn about maintaining its history. I understand why people would make that argument. I don't agree. I think if it's entertaining, it's entertaining. Jamie, your thoughts? Yeah, I I think that the CFL needs to be concerned about the entertainment level of its product, but that doesn't necessarily mean adopting the NFL rules, right? And I can see the argument for it because that's what people are more familiar with. That's what the more popular style of football is now, certainly. But you also have to think the flip side is, well, if you can just watch, if this is just four down football, do you actually lose a draw for a lot of people, right? Do you lose the thing that distinguishes you from the other product that has a lot more fans and a lot more resources and a lot more media attention on it? Do you need a hook to actually draw people in? And yeah, you said it well, Scotty, entertaining is entertaining. And you know, CFL games, sometimes they, they can be a little choppy, I think, in part because of the third down rule, right? You get a lot of punch, you get a lot of... Uh, you know, quick possessions where neither team is able to move the ball, that can be a concern, but the immediate answer doesn't have to be, okay, well, and then we need to have four downs, right? There might be other ways you can tweak the product while still maintaining that identity of the CFL. Yep, and I have long been a believer in that, and yes, I am a CFL backer. I love the NFL. I love college football. I love all levels of football. Personally, I understand there are some who only want one, and that's what they're sticking with, and they want everything to resemble it. I'm not among those. I've always felt that if the product is good enough, you'll enjoy it for what it is. College football is not the NFL. And I've got news for you. There are some big programs that play some bad football at times, but there's such a volume of it in the United States that you can turn your eyes away from it and go watch a good game. That's that's part of it. And there are only nine teams in this league. There are four games a week. So if it's a tough week, yeah, it can suffer. But the league itself can be, has been, and could continue to be very entertaining. I think work within the rules you have. You might want to tweak one here or there. But there are aspects of the Canadian game that are far more entertaining than the NFL product, quite frankly. The fact that there are more kick returns, that's great. I'd love to see more of that in the NFL. Yeah, the motion rules always stand out for me. The wider field as well, the extra guy on the field. I think those are all opportunities for offensives to be more creative, be more explosive. And I agree. It's fine to tweak the rules. I think that's completely fair. I mean, really, every league should be looking, thinking about that all the time. All right. Like, how can we do these minor tweaks that get the game to where we want it to be that improve the product a little bit? So, yeah, the CFL should be doing that. But I would be so, so hesitant as the league to throw out what is a core part of of their identity. I think you would actually lose an incentive for a lot of people to tune in. Gramrit asking, does this mean a new stadium in the Valley for the Leos? No idea. In the here and now, they're going to operate at BC Place. That has long been a question. That's been a question for the Whitecaps as well. Are they in the right facility? In the perfect world, no. Both teams would be in a smaller facility. It's great to have a building like that when you're hosting an event like the Grey Cup or something that you can pack the place with. We all know how valuable that land is in downtown Vancouver as well and what could be done from a real estate perspective and how much the province stands to benefit on a sale of that. Yeah, the BC Place storyline is fascinating, as you say, because there is so much potential windfall revenue there. But I, I don't... I also don't get the sense that anything like that is imminent in the near future, right? So I would expect the Lions to continue at a BC place for certainly the foreseeable future. One of the reasons that people crave local ownership is that there is 
usually more accountability when you live, walk, breathe in a community and, and you have to see some of the fans who are consuming your team's product. Accountability, I've teased a couple of times, and here's why. Dave Gettleman is the general manager of the New York Giants. He selected Saquon Barkley right near the top of the draft not that long ago. No one questions the player. They question the selection because of position. You just don't take running backs that high. They're too replaceable. Why would you do that? Not the position to go for. Saquon Barkley, Jamie, when he's been healthy, he's been exceptional. He's been great. Yeah, it's just the when he's been healthy is a big caveat there, right? Because he missed all of last year with an injury. There's still questions about what his health is going to be going into week one this year. And that's one of those things. It's certainly not a guarantee for every running back, but it's kind of foreseeable at the running back position, right? That we are, We're not surprised when a running back suffers a major injury like that, given the demands of the position. So Dave Gettleman was questioned about Saquon Barkley's injury history, his health currently, and his selection of Barkley near the top of the draft. That was done, I believe, yesterday. Have a listen. Injuries that have caught up to Saquon, do you still feel as passionate as you did in 2018 and brought him back with the right Absolutely. Absolutely. He's, he's, you know, stuff happens. You know, not everything's perfect, and guy, and, and there are guys all over this league that get hurt, and and big time players. And, and he's done a great job rehabbing, and I feel the same way about him. He's different, and he's he's going to be ready to go when he's ready to go. Obviously, though, that stuff does happen more to running backs. Is that not? I, I don't know that that's true. We don't, you don't believe that they have shorter career lives than maybe other positions because of maybe the hits that they I don't, I, You know, Jordan, uh, you know, really and truly, you know, <laughs> really and truly, you can talk about injuries at, a, at any position. All right. I would, I, I would not make a different decision today that I made in 2018, plain and simple. So it brings up this issue of accountability. Dave Gettleman has to say that, though, doesn't he, Jamie? Saquon Barkley's still in his roster. He is still one of the horses on that offense, assuming he is healthy. He can't go, yeah, I should have made a different pick, even though we've locked this guy into a big contract. Dave Gettleman can't come out and say, I would do things differently. Well, that's what I find so fascinating about this, because people jumped all over that quote. And I understand that Dave Gettleman and the the New York Giants as a whole are a bit of a punching bag right now. They are not a particularly formidable NFL team, so there's always going to be that temptation. But you're right. You know, people come out and say, what is he talking about? You know, he could have had Bradley Chubb there. He could have had, you know, Lamar Jackson, at quarterback there, if he had the foresight to do it. How can he sit there and defend taking Saquon Barkley with the second overall pick? But I think you're right. They're still relying on him to be the key part of their offense. So what do you expect him to say? And I always find it fascinating from a fan's perspective, right? Because we want accountability from the general manager, from the owner, from the head coach, whatever it is. But what's realistic to expect, right? When you're talking about a mistake, Dave Gettleman probably 
in his heart of hearts, yeah, he probably does regret taking Saquon Barkley second overall in 2018. But we also understand it would be more damaging to the team now to come out and say that. So as a fan, I mean, do you want just raw honesty from the general manager? Do you want them to say, wow, I really screwed that one up. I can't believe, what was I thinking? I don't know. This went horribly wrong. Or do you want them to try to kind of find that middle ground, right? Where you say, well, yeah, bad things happen, but I stand by the decision. I just find it such a fascinating conversation, especially here in Vancouver, right, Scotty? And I know, you know, you have prepped for interviews with Jim Benning several times over the last few years, right? And, you know, when we've been about to have Jim Benning on the show, I see the texts come in that say, are you going to ask him about the Louis Erickson deal, right? Are you going to ask him, you know, why did he sign Jay Beagle? And at a certain point, you know, how many times, how how worth it is is it to ask a general manager about a mistake when you know they're not going to give you that red meat answer that certain fans want, if, if that makes sense? Yeah, and there is that in-between that you talk about, which is on the Louis Erickson front. Didn't work out the way we thought it was going to work out. Yeah. And that's as close to as admit, at admitting that you made a mistake as you're probably going to get. That's as close as you're going to get. You're not going to get Jim Lights down in Dallas all the time coming out and and ripping Jamie Benn and Tyler Sagan in the media the way that he did a few years back. It's pretty rare that you're going to have that. And again, there's a there's a degree of removal there in the person that was saying it as opposed to the person who was making those signings. I don't know what Gettleman's supposed to say there. I really don't. And you know. The, the argument with running backs, because we hear this about goaltenders all the time, it's changing a little bit because we're seeing goalies drafted in the first round with a higher frequency in the NHL than, than we did for a, a length of time. Hey, you can't draft a goalie there because you're wasting too much draft capital. It's not about the player. It's about the draft capital. And the argument with running backs, Jamie, is almost more about the second contract than it is yeah. as to where you select them in the draft. Yeah, and of course, where you select them potentially sets them up for a bigger second contract, right? And how you use them and all of those things. So I understand the argument. But yeah, I mean, that's putting him, that's putting Dave Gettleman in a really, really impossible position. And it would be one thing if, you know, it's this question is coming after Sago and Barkley has moved on from the Giants, right? Or now that Dave Gettleman is in a different position and he can speak a little bit more freely. But when the guy who is widely perceived as a mistake from a roster perspective is still on the team yeah the general manager is really really limited in what he's going to be able to say without actually doing more damage and what is the best way to admit you made a mistake to move on from it or just to come out and provide a quote you know the tampa bay pardon me not the tampa bay buccaneers the jacksonville jaguars obviously felt they made a mistake drafting leonard fournette when they did because they released him last year and it worked out for him and Leonard Fournette has made some nice money, and now he's got himself a Super Bowl ring to go with it in Tampa Bay. But their admittance of the mistake was, this player's gone. And that's our business decision here, as opposed to saying, yeah, I guess we, if we could go back and redo that draft, we should have done something differently. And again, to draw the parallel to the Vancouver Canucks, I guess we saw the ultimate admission of a mistake in the big Oliver ekman Larson trade, right? Where you're giving up assets, yes, to get potentially valuable players back, but you're also giving up an asset to get Louis Erickson, to get Jay Beagle, to get Antoine Roussel off of your salary cap sheet. And again, does that does that satisfy the fans, or did they still need to hear Jim Benning at some point come out and say, man, I really screwed up on those deals? That's the conversation that I find fascinating, because there's always that kind of emotional 
demand, but you're right. Sometimes the best way to admit defeat is just move on from the player. And some of it is, hey, we'll find out after the fact, but while you're still doing the job and while you have some of these players around and while you have an owner that demands a certain perception, you can't really say what's on your no. mind. You have to say what is no. somewhat publicly acceptable and is somewhat posturing. It's a part of the gig. Yeah, exactly. It is. It's part part of it is political and managing expectations and keeping your players happy and keeping your owner happy, as you said, keeping your coaches, you know, not putting them in a tough position, right? Where then all of a sudden they get they have to answer for whatever incendiary quote you put out in the media. Well, that's a place I'd like to go as well, as far as expectations go. The big news of the day is the BC Lions are now under new ownership. Can Amar Doman turn things around? And if so, what does success look like to you as either a local consumer of the product or just somebody from afar saying, you know what, I would qualify that as success for the BC Lions. You can get in on that and much more. 650-650, it's the Dunbar Lumber text message inbox. The co-general manager of the BC Lions, Neil McAvoy, joins us in the final hour of the program today as well. Now back to Rintoul and Sermon. There's some reaction coming in on the BC Lions new ownership announcement. We will get to it. We will get to the opinion of someone who's worked for the club for the last 26 years. Co-general manager Neil McAvoy will join us at the bottom of the hour. Jamie Cmac's on the morning show all week. He's the boss part of Bick and the Boss. Bick is there as well. The two of them in there for the vacationing Jason Bruff and Mike Halford. And this morning, someone said, oh, C-Mac, you made me feel young again, and that makes you old because you talked about a time when there were no ads on rink boards, and the person who texted and said, I'm 38, and so that makes me feel young again. Jamie, is there something that makes you feel old? I don't know if that made C-Mac feel old, but you're what, 36? I uh, 35, thank 35, you 35, pardon me. Scotty, 35. Uh, I would say everything makes me feel old. More really? Or less. I don't know. <laughs> No, I, there there are certainly no shortage of things that make me feel old. I, I will say that much. So you sound to me like someone who is very much in tune with what your age is, and you're very comfortable with your age, and you feel every bit of 35 years old. Yeah, that's fair to say. Yeah, see, I'm not like that. And I don't know if our listeners are like that either. I am someone who still thinks I'm much younger than I actually am. I'm 46, but I don't feel 46. I don't think of myself as 46. I think of myself as much younger than that, which is probably the wrong way to go, but it's just the way I think about it. Every once in a while, something comes along that makes me feel my age, and I found a new benchmark for that. You know what it was? Reading glasses. Reading glasses. I now have reading glasses for very close-up reading. And I just got them. I got them in the last couple of weeks. And it's a signpost that a lot of people have. And I'm not down on reading glasses whatsoever. But reading glasses to me went, oh, I guess that I am aging like everybody else, which is generally a thought I don't have in my mind. And so now I've got reading glasses so that when I read my kids' stories at night when we're doing bedtime, I can actually see the words clearly. And I don't have to (laughs) hold the book about two arm lengths back from where it needs to be. See, at least you you sound like you have made peace with it, though, right? Like, yeah, okay, it makes me feel old, but I also understand it. It hel- it actually helps me kind of get some things done that I want to do. So it, it sounds like you are at least somewhat at peace with the news. Yeah, I'm at peace with that part of it. I'm not at peace with 
thinking I'm 46, though, if you yeah, know what I mean. Okay. Like, I, I have yeah, compartmentalized okay. I that, that yep. part of it. I've compartmentalized that part that, well, this is just this one thing in my day that I need for just a few minutes' time. And if I don't put the glasses on too much, then I don't have to be 46 during the other hours of the day. Well, just think of yourself as a, you know, a very young person who happens to need reading glasses, right? I'm sure that exists. Just just say, yeah, yeah, this happens to young people all the time. Jeff from Mission says, you know, I think we all get to an age, and he referred to me as Shermanator, which takes me back in time. We all get to an age where time goes by so quickly that you don't realize you're getting old, and then one day it hits you. Yeah, I think that's kind of what hit me when the glasses finally arrived, and Believe me, I procrastinated. I got the eye test. I didn't order them right away. I know I needed to. Yeah. I should have, but it took me a long time. And, well, I'll get to it tomorrow. I'll get to it next week. I'll get to it next month. Okay, I'm having trouble with the words. I'm going to need to get those glasses. Yeah. That's and I, I, I do understand that impulse, right, to kind of put off the thing that kind of confirms the aging process. You know, I, I don't want to pretend like I'm, oh, I'm so comfortable with it. You know, everyone struggles with the concept of getting old. So I hear where you're coming from there. But it's one of those markers that I will never forget. I'll remember how old I was when I got glasses, and it almost signals a new era for me. Because from here, Jamie, the glasses only get stronger, and then I have to make a decision, do I get <laughs> contacts at some point? Like, the decisions only get harder age-wise from here. Yeah, it doesn't go backwards, at least not in my understanding. Yeah, I don't know if there's any signposts for anybody else out there, but that's my latest one. Yes, I too am mortal, despite the fact that I like <laughs> to think of myself as hey, something how, else. How's your hand, by the way? It's almost normal again. It's nice. almost normal, like just a little bit of swelling, but yeah, it's gone down substantially, and if you didn't know, you probably couldn't tell. It's okay, just that's a good. little bit of puffiness after the big wasp sting on the weekend that looked like the nutty professor hand for two days. Yeah, I was going to say, you're no longer uh, Professor Clump anymore on that one hand. Steven in Delta says, 46, damn, Scotty, you're old. I'm 45. I don't know 46 till September. <laughs> I have a running joke with my bro brother-in-law, my wife's brother, who is one day older than me. One day older. Every year he uses the same joke because both of us like it. And I'll call him on his birthday, and I'll say happy birthday, and he'll say, Oh, man, you're still 46. I remember what that was like. <laughs> one day. One day. So we have that running joke year see, after year. See, I have a uh, – I'm born in early January, and I have a, a close buddy of mine who's born the same year but in late November. So there's only about a month – you know, I, I'm, or, or sorry, it's, it's more of like an 11-month uh, age gap. So for most of the year, I will be a year older for him. And every time when it gets around this part of the year and I see him, I can't – like. I'm 35 right now. I'm like, really? You're still 34? That's outrageous. I'm already, I'm already moving on to 36, and you're still here enjoying 34? It's such a ripoff. I hate it. Well, there you go. And you know what you're in for now, now that you've got one child and another on the way. You're into seeing those lists that come out and saying, how many of these do you say as a dad? And realizing oh, that yeah. you say about 14 of 20, and you say, I'll never be that guy. And, <laughs> and, man, there was one of those lists that came out the other day, and I saw it. And, like, seriously, my ratio was something like that, 70%. And one of them was like, I said that yesterday, and I just, like, you do the face palm literally in life when you see a list like that. Yeah, I, I would have to go through one of those lists, but I would be, I would expect that I have a very, very high hit rate on that. I feel like I have embraced the, the, you know, the cringy dad sayings and phrases very early in my dad career. You think that, Jamie? But then you see a list like this <laughs> and something you didn't think was a dad phrase, you go, 
Oh, I didn't really realize. I thought I thought that was actually <laughs> something kind of witty by me, and it's actually a dad phrase, and you get caught right there. A couple people texting in, wait till you turn 50, then you can talk about being old. Someone saying, you know what comes after getting reading glasses? Problems urinating. Enjoy your 50s, pal. I will wait, and I will push that off as long as humanly possible. It's Scott Rento. It's Jamie Dodd. Dunbar Lumber text box. It's at 650-650. It is open and it is open and it is thriving. And we have a lot of people coming in. Someone saying, did ownership pay to get the lines or did they get paid to take over the lines? That's tongue-in-cheek. Yes, there was a deal brokered. I don't have the financials on the situation, but the lines were purchased. They were not given. It was not assuming debt. That's not what it was here. This was a purchase by Amar Doman. And I'm sure that the numbers will come out in coming days. But we have people chiming in. Somebody saying this. You have a new ownership group for the BC Lions. You can't get the new owner on. That's a major fail for the Leos. I don't know that the new owner won't be on later today. What I do know is that the timing of the press conference did not allow us to get the owner on during the course of our show. And because, like, this has been kept really quiet. You got to applaud the league and the Lions for this, Jamie, because how many times have we thought, yep. oh, there's an ownership announcement coming? The BC Lions, they're going to be sold. And it's been Heismaned every single time. And then suddenly here today, we get this press release this morning, and the way that it was worded led you down the path that it ultimately went to. But nobody had said a word up until this point in time. And this is a question that comes up commonly with this franchise. And to the, the person who said that's a fail for the Leos not getting the owner on, their media availability is still going on with the new owner yeah. and there are rights holders involved as well. So the fact that their media availability ends at 1230 and people with the Lions were under non-disclosure agreements until 1130 this morning, there was no way for us to line up the new owner for our show today. Yeah, and just to to peel back the curtain a little bit here at 650, you know, myself and the other producers – we all have a group chat where we coordinate, you know, not just who we're chasing on a day-to-day -day basis, but also how to get kind of big name, high value guests on, on the station as quickly as possible. And I can confirm, yes, we are in the works, in the process of getting the new Lions owner on the station. So whether it's uh, tomorrow on the afternoon show, whether it's tomorrow morning uh, on the morning show, you will hear shortly uh, from the new Lions owner here on Sportsnet 650. We've been asking you about local ownership. How important is it to you? What might it mean for the BC Lions? Local ownership is optimal. Winning and losing is important. And more is at stake for a local guy. That's what Green Helmet in Surrey said. That comes back to accountability. I believe that's fair, Jamie, that there's more pressure when you're in the community and you are visible as opposed to being on the other side of the country. It doesn't mean it can't work with that model, but I think there's something to what Green Helmet is saying. Well, you certainly hope that's the case, right? That the the owner feels a little bit of that local pressure when things aren't going well and that, that spurs them to try to do better on, on the field and try to put a better product out there. I'm not sure it always plays out that way. And, you know, the interesting thing with the CFL as opposed to, let's say, the NHL is the level of wealth you need to be the team owner is much lesser. It's still significant, obviously. You have to have deep pockets. You have to have the financial resources to do it, but it's not nearly at the same level as you need to be an NHL owner. And I wonder if that, you know, means you maybe are more a part of the day-to-day -day community here, right? You're not quite as removed from the average person's experience in the community. So hopefully in this case with the new Lions owner, that will be a reality and they will feel the pressure to put a winning team on the field. One of the criticisms of the late David Braley toward the end of his tenure as Lions owner was that there were no bells and whistles anymore. That, yep, 
making sure that the staff got paid and the players got paid, but there wasn't a real impetus to put money into those other things. Hey, more marketing, more promo, flashy new things, whether it's in-game entertainment, whatever it is. That was one of the criticisms of David Braley in recent years. We got this text here, unsigned, that says, the Lions need to revamp the business side of the front office. Too many stale lifers there, no innovation. There's no community with this team. The casual fan would have trouble naming any players other than Riley and Burnham. They also had a Facebook live stream at the press conference, which was painful to watch with technical glitches. Those types of things reflect badly on the team. I agree with aspects of that text, Jamie. I don't agree with others. The trouble naming players other than Riley and Burnham, I agree with that. Part of that has to do with the reality this team hasn't played for two years. There were yes. people who retired. There is always turnover in this league. Part of that is not the Lions' fault because you can go through a lot of CFL rosters right now and the casual can't name any players on the roster because of those factors. Well, and not only because of those factors. I mean, that's not exactly unique to the Lions' ownership situation. I mean, you could say the same thing about fans in Toronto, right? That That's, that's bigger than the owner. That's also about the challenges of being a CFL team in a market like Vancouver. So, yeah, that's one of those challenges that the new owner has to address and has to find a way to take on. But it's not as if there's this clear and obvious solution that David Braley could have used and just decided not to that's a real puzzle that other cfl teams are trying to figure out too the lions need to revamp the business side and and this criticism saying that there were too many steel lifers and no innovation i think you got to be really careful with something like that because when you're talking about a league like the cfl part of your entry point is passion for the product and so you have people and we're going to bring one on at the bottom of this hour neil mcavoy is a lifer with the BC Lions. But Bob Ackles was a lifer with the Lions as well, and that worked out pretty well. And Neil McAvoy has gone from doing anything in the office to being a co-general manager of this team. So he has a very interesting context on what has worked, what hasn't, some of the challenges along the way. I agree with the fact that any business is going to have to bring in new blood at some point in time. One of the problems the Lions have had, and I don't think this is out there, I don't think most people know this, they have brought in fresh, young sets of eyes and ideas in recent years. One of the issues has been retaining those people, that they don't necessarily see a pathway upward or they don't see enough incentive to stay. So that is part of it. It hasn't necessarily been a problem getting some younger, innovative ideas and people in the in the in the building, Jamie, it's been, can you keep them around? Can you make it worth their while to stay? And before you point the finger at the people on the business side of things, you have to ask the question, well, has there been enough investment there, right? Do they have the resources to do their job effectively, to try out some of these new and innovative ideas, which they might be interested in? I know, you know, like a lot of teams around North America, but I know the Lions cut staff at certain points during the pandemic, right? So then all of a sudden the people that are left there, they're stretched a little thinner. They're being asked to do more. That puts a lot more pressure on them. And maybe some areas don't get as enough attention as they do, but it's not those people's fault. It's just the fact that the overall investment and attention doesn't exist. Yeah. And look, I think most people who listen to this program know that I've been pretty closely affiliated with this franchise for a lot of my career. I'm the former play-by-play voice. I did sideline reports for this team. I worked very closely with this organization for a very long time and know a lot of people who have worked there or do work there. I have watched people who wanted to be with the operation for a very long time 
get to a point where they went, look, I've put a lot in here. You got to give me a little something, whether that's an increased job title that comes with a raise or maybe just a little bit of the raise because I need a little carrot in front of me and I think I've been giving you enough. And some of those people have left the business and that's a loss for the franchise. So that's part of the new challenge for the owner as well. Listen, Jamie, part of the reason you and I do our job, part of the reason people want to go work for the Vancouver Canucks, the BC Lions, the Vancouver Whitecaps, the perk that comes with that, and they understand yep. that they might be able to make a little bit more money somewhere else, but they're willing to live with it for a while because they want to be associated with something they care about so much. But you also have to reward those people along the way. Yeah, there's a breaking point. You you can be the most passionate CFL fan in the world, right, and want to work for a team or want to work in the league for that reason, but there's still going to be a point where you say, yeah, but you have to live up to your end of the bargain as well, right? It can't all be me giving because I'm passionate. The employer, the team, the franchise, the league, they have to support me in certain ways as well. That's a crucial part of it. Yeah, you, you want the people that are passionate. You want the people that are you know true believers in the league, but it's got to be a two-way street there. This one comes in. One of the things the Lions have to do as well is get closer to the city, moving their practice facility to Burnaby, where Burnaby, where the old Fortius site is. City of Burnaby, I believe, has purchased that building. With the Whitecaps, they are so far out at UBC, they distance themselves from the regular fan media. You find it easier to get to Burnaby. It would get them closer to where they need to go to increase their fan base and help with their marketing side of things as well. That's just my opinion, says this texter. How much do you have to cater to the media in today's media landscape, Jamie? More people than ever are relying on different forms of technology to get their news, to get their information. Do you have to cater to traditional media to get them to your practices? Well, that is a fascinating question. It always seems to be with the CFL, with MLS to a certain extent as well. There's a chicken and the egg discussion here, right? Because, you know, we get texts on a regular basis, Scotty, right? Why aren't you talking more about the CFL? And we're probably one of the outlets in the city that pays the most attention to the Lions and the CFL. But we still get those texts. But then you also know the flip side, right? When people, when we do give a little bit of shine to it, people text in, I don't care about the CFL. Why don't you guys go back to talking about something else instead? And Media attention and media coverage is important, but it's also not the kind of thing you can't just kind of generate fan interest simply from increased media coverage, right? There also has to be an organic interest from the fans that predates, that's independent of the media talking about it. And then it's, you know, a positive cycle, right? Because the fans are into it, so the media gives it more coverage. That helps generate more interest, and it continues like that. But it's not as simple as saying, oh, well, the media just needs to do a better job of covering it, and then everyone would be a fan. It doesn't work like that. No, and one of the things I would give the Lions high marks for in recent years is the way that they've presented on social media. They've done a very good job with their account, and they've got 124,000 followers on Twitter. And if you've watched the way they've rolled out their social over the last two, three, four years, I don't know exactly what the time frame is, they've done a very good job with that. But that needs to translate into a difference in perception that the product itself is cool and that it's fun to go to a game. And that's the bridge right now that hasn't, you know, that's the gap, I should say, that hasn't been bridged right now. Making that translate to a few more bums in seats and a few more people talking about the product. And again, that is that situation is not unique. That dilemma is not unique to the Lions or even to the CFL, right? I mean, the NBA struggles with that. Okay, we get all this great engagement on social media. That's awesome. We like that people are following the league that way. 
but we also need you to actually watch the games. We also need you to actually come to the games, right? So that's a dilemma that pretty much every sports league around the world is going through right now. They all understand that social media is important. It's good to do a great job of it, as you say, which the Lions are, but the direct link between that and increasing revenue is not always clear. And yeah, like that's a big question that the Lions have to answer. They're not alone in that, but you're right. It, it is one of the things they're going to have to try to figure out. We have a message into our text message inbox brought to you by Dunbar Lumber. 650-650. For the new owner, we have a text message. I'm surprised the new owner's not listening. You, as in the new owner, Amar Doman, should surprise everyone by picking up the phone and calling right now. He should do this, says this texter. Hey, we're open to it. 280-0650. Amar, if you're listening, we will take the call. No problem. I'm suggesting he has a few other media responsibilities right now and that he's a little tied up. That is is where I'm le- uh, what I'm led to believe right now. Reg says, when did they get a new owner and who? I hope that happened today. Yes, that did happen today. His name's Amar Doman. He is in charge of Lumber uh, lumber Company and Futura in this province. Very wealthy owner of the BC Lions. We're talking about a local owner, Reg. And, yeah, that's been one of our topics du jour. We didn't get much into this, Jamie. I'm very much not surprised by this development Anybody who caught something about baseball last night may have heard about Jack Morris, former pitcher, Hall of Famer. Jack Morris is the color analyst for the Detroit Tigers, who were playing the Angels last night. That team features Shohei Otani. And late in the game, Shohei Otani came up, and I will. we're not going to play it for you, but I will tell you what he said. He was asked by the play-by-play voice, what do you do now with Otani? And Jack Morris said, in an Asian accent, be very, very careful. And it was mocking, and he came onto the broadcast later and apologized. He has since been suspended by the Detroit Tigers, Valley Sports Detroit. Extremely disappointed with the remarks Jack Morris made during last night's game. He's been suspended indefinitely from Tigers broadcast and will be undergoing bias training to educate him on the impact of his comments and how he can be an, a positive influence in a diverse community. This was the expected move from the broadcaster. Yeah, not a surprise. Um, just, just unacceptable and something that I think if you're in a broadcasting role, in a prominent broadcasting role, you should know it's unacceptable to be caricaturing somebody's accent or the accent that you think they have to for a joke right we just all understand no you don't do that right now when you do do it there's going to be some consequences and this might not be the end of jack morris's broadcasting career but yeah you had to expect something like this was coming down and i mean i i know it's going back a long ways now but we should also point out you know this is not jack morris's first go around saying something offensive, right? There's that that story from a long time ago where he made the really crude remarks to a young uh, woman reporter in the locker room who was just trying to do her job, just starting out in her career. So it, it's not Jack Morris's first experience with something like this, and I, I am not surprised uh, that they're going to put him on an indefinite suspension. In 2021, everyone should understand how much language matters, and that doesn't mean people won't misspeak, but this was intentional. Yeah. This isn't incorrect usage of a word or incorrectly uh, identifying a member of the LGBTQ plus community inadvertently. This was a direct choice made by Jack Morris on the broadcast. And 
as I said, we should be in a much better place knowing how much language matters. We've had these conversations about homophobic comments in the past, Jamie. We've certainly had a, a higher degree of attention on what has been a lot of racism directed toward the Asian community over the past year around the planet, specifically in North America. And for Jack Morris not to be cognizant of that, quite frankly, is unfathomable. Yeah, it really is, especially when the story of the Major League Baseball season is Shohei Otani, right? And, you know, not that it would make it more understandable if it was about a less famous player, but just the lack of awareness demonstrated in this situation is really incredible. We will talk BC Lions about the change in ownership, why it's the right time, and what the future holds next. The co-general manager of the BC Lions, Neil McAvoy, joins us on Rintoul and Sermon with Jamie Dodd. Now back to Rintoul and Sermon. Steven in Delta says, it has been years since this team has been competitive. The best way to get people in the seats is to turn the corner and make this team consistently competitive. Then all the other little bits and pieces you do will bring fans in. But if they don't win, they won't come. I'm not sure I agree with that in 2021. I think a lot of people in football believe that, Steven. I don't think a lot of casual sports fans believe that right now in Vancouver. I'm Scott Rintoul. Jamie Dodd is my co-host today. We'll see what the co-general manager of the BC Lions has to say. Neil McAvoy will join us here momentarily. I think the script has to be flipped a little bit. I think the biggest problem for the Lions isn't the lack of W's. I think it's the perception. It's not fun. It's not cool. Yeah, and I think what you have in your mind when you say, you know, maybe casual sports fans in Vancouver don't necessarily think that is you could point certainly to the example of the Canadians, right, where winning winning and losing doesn't really matter at all. I mean, sure, great, go cheer for the team when you're there, but you're there to have fun with your family or with your friends at Matt Bailey and drink a beer at a really cool venue. That's what you're there to do. And to a lesser extent, I think you could point to the Whitecaps as well. I, I, I do think winning and losing matters a little more for the Whitecaps than it does for the Canadians. There are more people invested in the team's success, but it's undeniable that the atmosphere is a huge part of the draw for the Whitecaps as well. Any event now. Any event now. It's it's a lot to do with the atmosphere. There are certain things that fall outside of the umbrella, but for the vast majority, hey, did you have fun tonight? Some of it's dependent on winning and losing. Some of it's not. And it's almost as though you got to think of it the other way. Hey, get people out, get them having fun, and then hope that they like your product as well. And if you think you got a good one, just get more people in front of it, and eventually they will warm to it. See what Neil McAvoy, the co-general manager of the BC Alliance, who are under new ownership as of today, has to say. He joins us now. Neil, thank you very much for making time. How are you? Uh, great. What a great day to uh, be a, a BC Lion and a uh, you know fan of football in the province of British Columbia. Not many people have seen more than you with this organization. You are in your 26th year. That means you predate the David Braley ownership, which is now turned over to Amar Doman. Why is now the right time for this franchise to be under new ownership? Well, at the end of the day, I mean, David Braley, God bless him, um, loved this franchise and loved the Canadian Football League. And um, you know what? There was uh, you know speculation that uh, he, you know, people wanted him to sell the team as far long ago as 2010. And at the end of the day, David just loved this franchise so much that, you know, even in his passing, the club continued on with, uh, you know, no, no problems. And so um, I think this is just a, a good opportunity for um, having ownership uh, that that's local so we can build 
from the ground up and uh, start uh, getting back to uh, what we all like, and which is you know successful football in the province. You're right. Amar Doman is a local, and now this team is under local leadership. We've been asking our listeners all day, hey, how much does local ownership matter for your sports team? And the vast majority think it matters at least somewhat, and some think it matters a lot. Given where the Lions are right now as a franchise, why do you think it's important to have local ownership right now, Neil? Well, I just think it's good to have a guy, you know what, um, and again, back to David living in Hamilton, Ontario, as much as he loved the football team, he, you know, also had his businesses in Southern Ontario that he had to run. So he wasn't able to be on the ground to talk to, you know, the corporate sponsorships, to talk to all the stuff that needed to be done here all the time. I believe having, and I hope having local ownership will give, you know, the the owner the opportunity to, uh, you know, speak with all the corporations that are here in the province of British Columbia and not do it over the phone. I mean, you can do it in person. So now, you know, the local ownership will just elevate this club to where, you know, we all want it to be, which is successful. And I know the CFL, Neil, really prides itself on being a league that has strong grassroots connections and connections within a community. Is that something that's going to be kind of priority number one, you think, for local for the new local ownership in Amar Doman is to build those ties specifically within the business community here in BC? Yeah, I think within the business community. I don't, I don't believe you can build more ties, and I've said this many times, I've said it on this show, within the province of British Columbia in the football community. Okay, I have, you know, I'm the co-general manager of the BC Lions, yet I have a Zoom meeting with my son's football team Friday night. Okay, so I'm coaching with there. We have multiple players, multiple coaches that coach within the communities that, you know, you never hear of because, you know, that's just what they do. We are embedded within the football community, and we just have to keep on running with that to, uh, you know, make, you know, people realize that Canadian football is a viable product, an exciting product, and just to keep the sport of football going in the province of BC. I know it's early days still. Obviously, the announcement was just made public earlier today, not that long ago. Have you had a chance to either speak direct, directly with Omar Doman or, or has he direct, direct, um, directly addressed the staff? And if so, what has his message been to you and, and others with the BC Lions? Honestly, it's been too early. I have met him. Um, we had our, you know, after the announcement today, we actually did our team pitcher, which was all set up to have Omar um, in the pitcher and the um, you know, the estate of David Braley have a, you know, a keepsake for the team. So, um, you know, we haven't really sat down as a staff to talk to him or he hasn't talked to us with the current uh, world of COVID co- protocols and everything else. We did everything outside today and we're just trying to keep everyone safe. And at the end of the day, that's the, um, you know, the ongoing battle that we're all dealing with. And we're going to continue that tomorrow and, uh, you know, have as many people as we can at BC Place and, and social distance and uh, keep everyone safe, but uh, still put on a a good football product. A lot of tickets have been snapped up, but some do remain. You can purchase those. Go to bclions.com for your link there. Neil McAvoy, assistant general manager, pardon me, co-general manager, I apologize, of the BC Lions joining us. Now, you've you've held many different titles. That was one of them in the past because you've been with this franchise for 26 years, Neil. You have seen the product on life support at various times during your career in the Canadian Football League, and you have seen it bounce back and thrive once again. What has worked in the past that you believe can work now under new ownership going forward? Well, yeah, exactly right. To be quite honest, when I first started with this club in 95-96, uh, it, it was in pretty tough shape. Um, you know, what David um, had, had built us up to, to where 
we want it to be in the mid 2000s and uh, we just have to start you know keep on building and that, that's what it's all about you know what and, and you know I, I was listening to you guys earlier on when the national football league arguably the best league in the world has problems selling tickets do you don't think the rest of us are going to we need to put on a product we need to keep on building but we have to find uh, you know bigger and better ways to uh, promote the sport of football in the province and throughout the country and uh, that's that's our goal and that's what we're going to continue to do I know that you and the rest of the organization were under non-disclosure agreements up until this announcement today. Everybody understands why, and the organization did a fantastic job of keeping this under wraps. Nobody really saw it coming in the here and now. How long has this been in the works? How long have you known that this was a possibility with this particular owner? Honestly, um, I, I, I spoke to uh, Rick, Rick Campbell and myself, spoke to Rick Lawlisher a couple of days ago, and he just alerted us that something is going to happen. He didn't mention names. So, um, and, and to be quite honest, uh, when, when things are kept tight and when things um, were announced like they were today with no one knowing, that to me tells me that these were real conversations, that these were real negotiations that, uh, that were went through because – you know, things that get spilt and things that uh, people hear early on, usually that doesn't lead to anything. But the fact that uh, this was kept, you know, basically within the tight-knit group of the owner and the previous owner and, and, and Rick Lollisher tells me that, uh, you know, they worked long and hard to get this uh, deal done. And like I say, I'm just excited to be a part of it now and a uh, part of it uh, for the future. I have not seen a depth chart for tomorrow night's game against the Elks and their first visit to BC Place under their new franchise name, but I'm led to believe that Amar Doman will not be blocking or catching or throwing any passes. That said, how can today's announcement do something for your football club? What does it mean for the players in that locker room to get this today? Yeah, you know what? Um, good question, Scott. I, I, I think it will help. I mean, uh, to be quite honest, this, this club, and I've said this since day one, even as ill as we played uh, week one, quarter one against the Saskatchewan Rough Riders, these guys never lost faith. They never lost their attitude. They never lost their excitability. And that's what happens when you have a young football team that uh, maybe doesn't know what it's like to uh, go into Saskatchewan. They know now, but maybe not, you know, week one, uh, game one, they knew. And, and they've, they've kept everything just excitable. This is an exciting football team on and off the field. These guys are, you know, young and ready to go and uh, i'm not sure if, if, it, if it changes anything because to be quite honest we're, we're hoping to run in all cylinders regardless of uh, what what happened today or, or or in the future and in the the bigger picture in the longer term neil i know one of the things fans always want to see from ownership of their favorite teams is the necessary investment to put a good product on the field from from your viewpoint in the football operations department what can an owner do to help you and your colleagues do your job to the best of your ability? Yeah, we live in the salary cap world now. We're much like every other league that, you know, we can't overspend or underspend. We have, you know, uh, guidelines that we have to do. Um, what, I, what I like and you know, from what I like from ownership is just to have, you know, uh, continuity, continue it. I, I, I don't like to hear in the media or outside, or are you guys going to fold? Are you guys going to be around? That's not the case. The BC Lions have been around since 1954. The BC Lions will continue to be around. Canadian football will continue to be around. We just have to work within and as a group to just make the product what it is, which is exciting football for the for the you know, people of Canada and the province of British Columbia. We are Canada's football league. We are Canada's professional league. We're the only one. We can say that hockey's not hockey. Hockey's American. 
So, you know, we are Canada's league. We just have to keep on building and keep our fans excited, and uh, that's what we're going to do. And I know a lot of fans are excited for the home opener tomorrow. I'm sure you were really excited even before this announcement, but how much does it increase it that you get this incredible announcement today and then you're going into what should be a really memorable night at BC Place tomorrow? Yeah, it is exciting. It's really exciting for you know all our staff and um, all our fans to see. You know what? I was talking to my young football operations guy, and you know we've been going at this since July 1st, and we've already had two games. So, you know what? As exciting as this, we've already been to battle a couple of times, but it's going to be great to get in front of our home fans at BC Place Stadium, just get into our locker room and come out because, you know what? BC Place is a great place to play. BC Place is a great. Uh, Great for our for our fans and our team, so we're just excited to get on the field and compete like we had the last couple of weeks. How did Michael Riley's arm look today? You know what, Michael Riley looked really good. He came out, he did the things that uh, were needed of him. We didn't uh, throw any deep balls or anything, but uh, you know today is basically a walkthrough. So, but he he took he took uh, more reps this week than he did last week. And uh, last week we saw the show he put on. So um, hopefully it's uh, bigger and better uh, each week for him. On the subject of quarterbacks, you are affiliated with the BC Lions, but you are a fan of the game and you are a fan of Canadian content as well. We don't know for sure whether Michael O'Connor is going to get this start, but it's a possibility. You've had a Canadian start at quarterback this year as well, and there's the opportunity because of Bo Levi Mitchell's injury in Calgary that maybe Michael O'Connor gets multiple starts. How significant would that development be for the league? I think it would be great for not only uh, the Canadian Football League, but Canadian football, okay, at all levels. When you're able to, you know, play the quarterback position, which hasn't happened, you know, um, the, the Michael O'Connors, the Nathan Rourke's, the Julio Caravatas, those, those are all guys that are, you know, I look at it, that, that have been able to break the barrier and uh, not only break the barrier, but compete at a high level. You know what, if you ask our American D linemen or American receivers coming in and said, you know, what do you think of Canadian Nathan Work, they would have said, oh, he, what, what do you mean Canadian? He's just a good quarterback. And that's, that's the barrier that we have to break. Just stop looking at them as Canadians, but as good quarterbacks. Nathan O'Connor, or sorry, Nathan Work and Mr. O'Connor, they're, they're good quarterbacks. And they hopefully will be able to you know, lead their teams uh, uh, on the field and then do some good things. What's it been like having football without a preseason this year after a year-long hiatus? Well, you know what? Yeah, that was I, I, before before we went into Saskatchewan. I was said it's probably no big deal. We should be able to, uh, you know, um, play on all cylinders. But unfortunately, the first half or the first quarter and a half against Saskatchewan, I sort of felt maybe we did need a preseason, and uh, you know, just to give our guys an indication of what it's like to compete at a high level. So when you go, you know what? We we just did not match the intensity in the first quarter from the fans, from the players, and. You know, when you go into a highly competitive sport like football or boxing and you're not matching the intensity, it's going to be a long day for you. So I was excited that our guys were able to rally back in the second half of that Saskatchewan game and then, of course, carry over to the big win in Calgary the week after. So the preseason maybe meant more to our team than what I would have liked to have been. But right now, the fact that we beat Calgary, I'm just happy to keep on going. The football will be the bigger story tomorrow. The business side of things is the biggest story today. That's why we led with it, and I want to end with this as well. The last time this franchise really needed resuscitating, Bob Ackles is the guy who came back, and it worked. 
Why did it work? And what can be learned by this ownership group from what Bob Ackles was able to do here in BC that can be applied today moving forward? Yeah, good question. I think what uh, Bob did when he came in, he just gave the team some, um, you know, love and some continuity and some, you know, just a little bit of a kick in the butt. And that's, I think, what, uh, you know, the new ownership will do here. And we, we just got to keep on going. We got to start building fans at the grassroots level to, you know, make them like Canadian football and, and, and can keep keep our fans going. And, I, you know, when Bobby came in, uh, he came uh, from the XFL, actually. And, uh, you know what, we were at a little bit of a downturn there, but just overnight the continuity of the football team with him at the helm helped us and elevated us to uh, really good things in the 2000s. And uh, hopefully this announcement today will be, will be the same uh, kick that we need. Well, you were never the water boy, but it's a similar career path as the one that Bobby Ackles followed. Continued success for you and for the Lions. It's a good day for the BC Lions. Congratulations, Neil. Yeah, thanks, guys. Thanks for having me on and talking about uh, football. We'll Absolutely. see you guys all tomorrow night. You know it, Neil McAvoy. He is the co-general manager of the BC Lions. I do want to hit on that point again. I said it earlier in the show, and I do think it's an advantage that Amar Doman has. While he is not regarded football-wise the way Bobby Ackles was, Jamie, you and I both know this. Hey, you know this as a producer trying to book guests. You can call as many people as you want, but somebody has to pick up the phone. And what Bob yeah. Ackles had was so many ties within the community that when he called, people would pick up. And they might ne not necessarily love what he had to say at the start, but he could ask for a favor. And that's the advantage that this local owner now has. He has a lot of ties in the community. He's got a lot of ties in the business community. People are going to pick up the phone when he calls, and hopefully he can convince them to help, help get behind this and get the ball rolling in the right direction. Yeah, and that, that's a great way to put it, right, to get the ball rolling because that, that first round of calling in favors, you know, that's only going to do so, so much. You can use that to generate some energy, some excitement, some momentum, but then you have to capitalize on that and you have to figure out a way to make it sustainable, to make other businesses that, you know, the owner might not already have a relationship for, to make them stand up and say, hey, that's pretty interesting. That might be something that we want to get involved in down the road, right? But you're right. The key to starting it is to have those relationships already built in to a certain degree. Because what this franchise is missing right now is something to get people over the hurdle. And the hurdle that exists is... You name the excuse, Jamie. Ah, parking downtown Vancouver. Do I really want to yeah. do that? Uh, do I want to fight traffic on a Friday night? I know tomorrow it's a Thursday game day, but during the course of a regular week working, and it's a Friday night. Do I want to fight traffic after a long work week? I'm not sure I can put my feet up at home. Or uh, what if the lines are long? Or I'm not sure about the concessions. you got to get people past those hurdles. you got to give them a reason. And a personal connection is one of those reasons that can get people out to a game. Yeah, it absolutely is. And it's there's a lot of potential excuses you can choose from, and one of them is just also lack of interest in the CFL, right? And that might be the biggest hurdle that, that Amar Doman is going to have to figure out a way to get people over, right? Just getting them invested in the team and the league in the first place. The other thing that I thought was really interesting in our chat with Neil McAvoy there was from – from a staffer's perspective, from somebody who works, you know, not just with the team, but in the football operations department, I thought it was really telling that what he wanted more than anything else from ownership is just stability, right? To, to make the constant questions about, are you folding? Are you in trouble? What's the payroll situation? Are you, are you moving? Are you relocating? To make all of those questions go away and just give a stable foundation for the people in the organization to do their job. And that, 
that harkens back a little bit to what we were talking about earlier in the show, Scotty, right? It's not necessarily a question about a lack of talent on the business side of things or in the football ops department for these CFL teams. They just need to be in the right environment to do their jobs. And I thought that was a very telling answer from Neil McAvoy. Hey, anybody out there who's taken a new job or has taken over as a manager at a new job or has seen their company go through an ownership change, there's some fear associated with it. But if your work environment has been unstable for quite some time, there's also this refreshing aspect that comes with it. And there's this wave of enthusiasm. And there's going to be that with this franchise internally right now. How can you capitalize on that enthusiasm as well? Hey, guys. This is a new era, as they said in the press release for the BC Lions. And here's what it's going to look like, because you're going to have a lot of people that have their sales filled by that news today. Yeah, and I thought we heard that with Neil McAvoy, right? You could hear the excitement. You could hear exactly that effect you're talking about. All right, let's go. This is a great day. We've got another great day coming up tomorrow. You could really hear the enthusiasm from him. Yep, and we'll see if that translates. We'll see. That's 12,500 people allowed into BC Place tomorrow. I've said this for quite some time. Once we found out there was going to be a return to play for this league and a return to BC Place for this team, this is just something to do. And people are looking for something to do right now. There are a lot of activities that have been limited because of COVID. There are a lot of activities right now in this province that are limited because of wildfires. Unfortunately, we've got a nice wave of weather, and that's helping those who are fighting and combating that in our province right now. If you're in the city tomorrow night, well, this is something you can do. I know not everybody's eager to be in a group setting, but with 12,500 and plenty of social distancing inside BC Place, hopefully a few people jump on this. I know there are some tickets remaining. It's not sold out quite yet, but it feels like we're trending toward that tomorrow night. Yeah, it does. And I think that's a big part of it, right, is people who are, oh, man, live sports is back in Vancouver. I know – you know, the Fraser Valley Bandits and the Canadian Elite Basketball League, they've been having their games out there. I don't want to disrespect what they're doing, but the CFL is at a bigger level than that. It's going to get a lot more attention. It's going to get the focus of more people. And I think that does play a role in why we're seeing tickets sell well and why we probably will see a sellout tomorrow is, man, I would love to go to some sort of live event right now. And this is a live event. Great. I'm sold. We could use more games. I can tell you that. Blue Jays are going to get underway in just a few minutes' time. Second half of a series with the Washington Nationals. They'll have an off day on Thursday before they resume their schedule against Detroit, I believe, on Friday. Go get a split, man. That's disappointing. And this is the problem, Jamie. All that optimism coming out of the weekend. So they lose the first two games in Seattle. And then they come back and they get a win. You go, okay, at least they kind of salvaged the series. And, man, the injury news on George Springer isn't bad as expected. And then you find out actually he's got a knee injury and he's week to week and you lose a game to a team that had lost seven straight. It's so bad. It's so frustrating. And, you know, again, it's the bullpen at the heart of it in so many ways. I know Alec Manoa had a rough outing as well, but you felt like the offense was crawling back into it. It has been a tough, it's been a bit of a tough stretch for the Jays, especially after they had that amazing return home to Rogers, to Rogers Center in, in Toronto. And you felt like, oh man, they're going to do it. They're going to claw their way back into this, man. It's tough to watch right now. Not tough to listen to some Canucks talk. However, it's coming up next for you right here in your home of Canucks hockey, Sportsnet 650. Canucks connected with Joey Kenward is up next. People show comes your way. In just a couple hours' time as well. Big ups to Greg Ballack back at Mission Control. Roger Shergill did a fine job booking this program today and producing it as well. My thanks to you, Jamie. We've gotten people over the hump. 
of the midday, or the midweek, I should say, and the midday, I suppose, for the most part. We are back tomorrow morning. Have yourselves a great Wednesday. We will talk to you then.